Thank you. It's beautiful. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses uh, there, and you've got some notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to uh, take those out as well. I have a question um, for you. How many of you have seen the movie uh, Fiddler on the Roof? It's one of my favorite musicals. It's such a, a great... If you've never seen that, uh, get with the program. Come on, you guys. <clears throat> There's a great scene where the Russian peasant uh, named Tevya asks his wife this simple question. Do you love me? Love him? Well, his wife Golda never even met Tevya until the day of their arranged marriage. And now after 25 years of marriage, he wants to talk about love. It sounds so, just so ridiculous to her, so foreign to her that she thinks he's sick and he needs to lay down. Probably COVID, I don't know. <laughs> Tevya repeats the question more sincerely. And Gold is confused why he's bringing up love. Now, and explains, look, I've been cooking your meals. I've been washing your clothes. I've had your children. And still it doesn't satisfy Tevya. And he asks the question again. And this time, <clears throat> Golda falls back on the obvious. She says, I'm your wife. And even so, Tevya persists. But do you love me? And after some reflection, she answers that she does indeed love him, realizing that her love hasn't been just meaningless, busy work. Uh, she has worked hard, but she did because she loves Tevya. And so it's, it's possible, though, as Tevya realized and, and as he feared for activity to replace love. Another peasant, a first century carpenter from Galilee, asks his bride the same question. Do you love me? Or are we so busy simply doing Bible studies and serving and doing this and doing that that our love for our Savior has grown cold? That was the problem with the church at Ephesus. And before we read our passage, I want to give you a little profile on the city of Ephesus. And this is on your outline if you want to follow along. Their mascot was the honeybee. It was on their coins and it was on other symbols that represented the city of Ephesus. And it's because Ephesus was known as being super industrious, as industrious as, as bees. Ephesus was a, a major religious center. It was the home to the huge and ornate temple of Diana, or Artemis, as she was called. And that made Ephesus also a big tourist center. Throngs of people traveled to the temple uh, and, and to the Pan-Ionian Games, which were kind of like the Olympics. And, and it was a learning center. It was one of the most famous, uh, one of the most famous ruins there is the Celsus Library. Uh, still impressive today. It was the second largest library in the world after Alexandria. And it was um, a transportation center. Their engineering was incredible. Their harbor, their roads were all very strategic. Uh, their streets were perfectly paved, paved, and they still are. I mean, there were giant stones. Uh, keep in mind, it was 2,000 years ago. But, I mean, you can still walk on them today. It was like they were 
2,000 years ago. Uh, compare that with the streets of San Diego and <clears throat> not very pretty. And Ephesus was, in, Ephesus was an entertainment center. They had a massive theater uh, that seats, seated thousands, like 24,000 people, and it attracted <clears throat> people from all over. And it was a business center. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered multi-level homes there. Think about this in the first century. Multi-level homes that had hot and cold running water. I don't know how they did that, ask those engineers, but it, it, that, that's what they had. They had stages inside their home for personal performances from actors. So they didn't have TVs, but they could call in and watch actors anytime they wanted. Um, and these were not homes of nobility. These were homes of, of merchants. And so they had a successful business class in Ephesus. And plus they were a power center uh, the first and largest temple to Domitian, the emperor, was built there. And uh, here's where it got dicey for the Christians. The emperor Domitian was Caesar when the book of Revelation was written. He was the emperor. He was the first emperor that demanded to be worshipped while he was alive. Most people, uh, most emperors, most Caesars would be worshipped as Lord and God after they died but he didn't want to wait until after he died, so he insisted people worship him now. Um, he was power hungry. The base of the, of the temple to the emperor is all that's left standing today. It's just basically the, the floor, but it was the size of a football field. Think of that, and three stories tall. Everything about the design was made to be intimidating. And it was. They found this giant statue of Domitian. And I mean, that it was just a giant that stood in the temple. And they found an altar that, uh, where people were expected to make a, a visit at least once a year and uh, kneel before it and sacrifice something to Caesar, to, to Domitian, uh, as God. And this was the place, that was the place where the possibility for compromise of the Christians happened right there in that temple. And the altar that they were bowing down to was decorated with shields and swords and helmets that all represented the armies that they had conquered. And so on your outline, you have this, that Acts 19 talks about Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus to preach the gospel. And so many people came to faith that those making money-selling idols feared their careers would disappear. When Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote his letter to the church that he'd planted at Ephesus. And Paul also writes 1 and 2 Timothy when Timothy was an elder in this church. And John wrote 1, 2, and 3 John to another elder in the church. So think about that. Six New Testament letters were written to the church at Ephesus. As you read through these letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, Ephesus, 1 and 3 John, there aren't really any major alarms that go off, like, oh man, there's major trouble in this church, like there is, for example, when you read through Corinthians, you think those folks were messed up big time. Uh, but that's not true of Ephesus. So this church has all this explosive growth, and yet they drift away. They lose their first love. So the first seven verses of Revelation 2 are written to these people who have, so to speak, taken their eye off the ball. And it's a great word for us. 
San Diego isn't unlike Ephesus. Uh, you know, we're a, a beautiful city. We live uh, near the ocean, strategic location. We're the eighth uh, wonder of the world. I meant the eighth largest city of the United States. And we're second by population uh, in, in California. And we reflect, I think, that busy bee uh, being highly industrious part of, of our culture. And there are positives to that. There are also some negatives. <clears throat> and so we need to hear what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus because this is what Jesus says to us. So let's read our passage. Uh, Revelation chapter two, beginning at verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is God's word. So the first statement here, again, like in chapter 1, points us to Jesus. And he's described in two ways in verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. In other words, Jesus has divine authority over his church. You've got that on your outline. He's responsible for them. And they, like we, are accountable to him. Jesus holds the church firmly in his hand. We have to remember that. And they will not be snatched away. One of my favorite verses, and I hope one of yours is John 10, 28 and 29, and it says this, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall, shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So how comforting is this? No one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. And then in verse 29, he says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So think about this, the son's hand is wrapped around us and the father's hand is wrapped around him so we're doubly safe. And if you are God's child, you need to know he is holding on to you. He has authority over you and we're responsible to him. You know the saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too? That's true. I've never eaten a piece of birthday cake and had it to eat again. Uh, but this rule does not apply to God's word and to his promises. 
You can enjoy his promises, and you can enjoy them again, and you can enjoy them again and again. And in fact, the more you taste God's promises, the sweeter they are. Do you consider yourself one of God's sheep? Are you afraid? Are you going through a dark valley right now, whatever that might be? Remember that your shepherd is with you. Are are you depressed? Do you feel helpless? Are you cast down? Then cry out to the shepherd. He will bring you back to the flock. Jesus purchased every member of the church with his own blood. He loves you. You are dear to him. And then it says Jesus walks among with the seven golden lampstands. He's personally and intimately right here. And what this means, and this is on your outline, is that Jesus is our sustainer and protector. Jesus is our sustainer and protector. He sees what we do. He hears what we say. He knows what we think. He he knows what's in our hearts. And this should give us great assurance. But at the same time, we're accountable to God. And then in verses 2 and 3, and this is number one on your outline, we see the church commended. Jesus sees what they're doing well. And at this point, every church should seek to do what the church of Ephesus is doing. The church was active. They were doing a lot of good things. And Jesus is fair and Jesus is accurate to point these things out. And the first thing he points out is that Jesus is pleased with our good deeds on your outline. Again, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. This community was doing things for the Lord. Scripture, not culture, was guiding their behavior. And purity of life was what this community of faith was all about. I like the way the message paraphrases verse 2. It says, I see what you've done, your hard, hard work, and your refusal to quit. And then next it says, Jesus is pleased with our sound doctrine. He is pleased with that. The church at Ephesus did have correct theology. They were faithful to to, to God's word. And one of the evidences of this is that they would not tolerate evil, says in verse 2. They tested those who claimed to be apostles but are not and have found them to be liars. And we don't know what their theological tests were, but... I'm guessing as as you look back over the centuries, you can see a lot of the same theological tests. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe in his person, in his work? Do you, you, what is the gospel? How are people born again? Do you believe that a holy life should should go along with uh, the confession of Christ? Or do you teach anything that's contrary to the, or or, or in addition to the, the word of God? I think these are probably the questions because these are the type of issues that that come up in almost every generation. And also in verse 6, they're commended if you hop down to verse 6 because Jesus says the the Ephesians hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Jesus says. And maybe you think of Jesus as meek and mild and saying all these loving things, but here he talks about something he hates. And we're not exactly sure who the Nicolaitans were, but it seems that idolatry and immorality were at the root of what they practiced. 
And Jesus, so, so Jesus is pleased with good deeds and sound doctrine. And then the third thing under number one is Jesus is pleased with our dedication. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So when they were threatened with death, they did not worship Caesar. They didn't go up to that altar. They didn't care how intimidating it got. And one commentator wrote this. He said, the Ephesian Christians faced special challenges <clears throat> because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana or the image of the emperor. They found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused. <clears throat> this made me think of, of Jews in the 1930s in Germany. The Christians in Ephesus would have been objects of, of physical violence, and they would have been objects of social ostracism. They would have been objects of economic rep repression, but they endured. They bore up under the load. Clearly, in Ephesus, they had been taught well by their leaders. And think of the leaders they had. This was the A-team. The Apostle Paul was one of their leaders. John was one of their leaders. Timothy was one of their, their pastors. What? The Ephesians were not fair-weather fans of Jesus. They, they knew the Lord Jesus. They were dedicated to him. You know, we, we have so many dedicated people here. I think these words could be written to us. In, in red ink, like they come directly from the Lord Jesus. He sees your dedication. And I think that he would say of the church at Claremont Emanuel, way to go. You guys are dedicated. Others are coming along. Keep up the good work. But all these things are unsustainable in the long run unless you have the right motivation for doing them. And the Ephesians knew the word. They, they could spot false teachers a mile away. They had great doctrine. They'd been patient through trials. Think of all these good things. And all looks well until you get to verse 4. And here the church is corrected. And Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. These are painful words. These are sobering words. And I don't believe they're a harsh tone of voice that they're coming out of Jesus' mouth. I think they're with great love and, and compassion. And, and it's, it's a caring voice that we're hearing. It's a little bit like what God says to us in Isaiah 44 through the prophet, I have called you by name. You're mine. You're precious in my sight. You're honored and I love you. That's the tone of voice with which we hear these words. And by all outward appearances, this church looked healthy. But its doctrine was spot on. The lifestyles of its members matched their confession. The church was doing all the right things, but at some point they had forsaken the right motivation. They had forsaken their love for Jesus. They didn't have a head problem. They had a heart problem. And so you have this on your outline. Obedience out of duty had replaced obedience out of love for Christ. And the difference between the two is massive. On one hand, we say, I obey and Jesus accepts me. Look at how obedient I am. And on the other hand, Jesus accepts me. I love him. And so I will gladly obey. That's the difference. And it's massive.
Jesus, and this is also on your outline, is honest with his church. He tells it like it is. This is an area of your life where, where I'm in opposition, Jesus says. This is an area that disappoints me, that even offends me. You know, we're his children, but we're like our own earthly daughters and sons who can disappoint their heavenly parent. Remember back in Revelation chapter one, take a look at verse 14 back in Revelation one. The son of God says, it says of him that his eyes were like a fiery flame. Boy, if Jesus sees something that he doesn't like, he is honest and frank, but loving when he says it. And so Jesus, and this is the next thing on your outline, is jealous for his church. He's jealous for us. He wants our love. His honesty reveals his deep love for us. Look again at verse four. I have this against you that you have left your first love. The, the message has this paraphrase of that verse. It says, but you walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? It was like a kind of a slap on the side of the head. Or a, a kick in the seat of the pants. Like, wake up. Why is this love? Where's the love that you abandoned? And what is that love? Well, I think we read about it when we read about the two great commandments. It's like Jesus is saying, don't forget the main thing. And you know what the main thing is? It's in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. This is the main thing. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, I, I love, there's a lot of things I love about being a pastor. There, not much I don't love, I guess, about being a pastor. But one thing I love is doing weddings. Um, I get the best seat in the house. <laughs> and uh, I was asked a couple years back, I got contacted, I'm not sure how they found me, but I think through a friend, I don't, I don't know how they found me, but a couple from France asked if I could do their wedding here in San Diego in French. And having lived in France for 10 years, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do your wedding in French. And so I, I did it. I had a friend who did uh, a wedding for a French couple, agreed to do it, but he didn't speak French, actually speaks German, but he didn't speak French. And, um, and he said it was rather messy. He said, I, I, I figured out right away that they didn't understand anything I was saying. And so even repeating the, the vows, you know, he said, uh, will you take this, you have each other for better, for worse. And they were like, uh, will you have each other for uh, better or until we go to a hearse or something like that. They were saying, <laughs> All these crazy things, not even what he was saying could they repeat well. Um, to have and to hold, I'll take you till you're old, or you know, whatever. <laughs> he said the gist was there, but that was about all we got. And he was flustered, and he forgot something I've never forgotten. He forgot to have them kiss. And so they're halfway down the aisle, and some little kid says, they forgot to kiss. And so the pastor was like, stop, stop, and kiss the bride. She's halfway down the aisle, and they go on down the aisle. And, and it's like Jesus says that to us. Don't forget the kiss. In our relationship with Jesus, we remember, this is on your outline, we remember the vows, but we forget the kiss. 
So how do we think about that spiritually? Think about the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. There's a longing to know him. There's an eagerness to please him. We do the right thing spiritually, but we can drift away from that. And this is exactly what Jesus criticized the Pharisees for. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And may that not be said of us. Look again at verse four. Again, I'll repeat it, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So the question is, how do we get it back? And he tells us in verse five, and this applies to, really to any lost love, to marriage or friendship or a, a parent-child relationship. It, 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 it applies to it all. But all was not well with the Ephesians. They had lost their first love. And it's, it's, it, it's never with Jesus in the church. Our great physician, it's, it's not lost with Jesus in the church. It's our, our great physician has diagnosed the illness. And we've got the solution in verse 5. He'll consider how far you have fallen, repent in verse five, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And that last phrase is the judgment he's talking about is not the second coming, but it's about the Ephesian church in particular and the local judgment against them. But it says, remember or consider from where you've fallen. Remember or consider from where you've fallen. Literally, that means keep on considering, <clears throat> keep on remembering. You know, one of the most respected marriage experts in the world is a man named Dr. John Gottman. And he writes this, most couples find that recalling their past together recharges their relationship in the here and now. So in a marriage relationship, you remember your first date. You, you remember the early days of your marriage. You remember how you never wanted to end a phone call. Goodbye. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I thought you said goodbye. I thought you said goodbye. No, I don't want to say goodbye. Yeah, we just, we don't ever want to end the relationship. We don't want to end the conversation. And it's the same with our relationship with Jesus. So think about these questions. What first attracted you to Jesus? How did you first get the idea that God loved you as a person, you individually? What were some moments that God's love became particularly real to you? I know for me what first attracted me was a, a tremendous, uh, uncon what I felt was unconditional love from all these people around me on a, on, a, on a church retreat and at the same time hearing a really clear presentation of the gospel that I'd never heard before. That's what attracted me initially. And God's love became particularly real to me. I remember the day after I became, a, maybe two days after I became a Christian, which was on a Saturday, the, the following Monday, was driving to school. Uh, I was 15, you can drive when you're 15 in Kansas. I was 15 years old. And I remember the sky looking bluer. And, and, and it was like everything was, had been in black and white before and was now all in technicolor. I, I, it was like these are God post-it notes to me. I love you. I love you everywhere I looked. And, and I remember looking at my friends and, and not thinking what I thought of whatever it was before, but thinking how God loved them. And I needed to tell them about God's love. And then the second thing in verse 5 
says we're to repent of our sin. You've got that on your outline. We are to repent of our sin. To repent is to undergo a change of mind that results in a change of attitude and action. To repent of our sin means we go from thinking uh, that the good things we are doing are earning us favor with God to realizing that we do not substitute loving Jesus. Uh, there's no substitute in love for loving Jesus with all of our heart. It means there's hope for us. In fact, the call to repentance means there's hope that we can change. Every saint has a past. We all have pasts, things that we're not proud of in our past. And every sinner has a future. We all have things that we can look forward to because God is at work in our lives, making us more like Jesus. And so stop believing the lie that it's too late for me. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for anyone. One commentator put it like this, in calling for the Ephesians to repent, Jesus reminds them that labor is no substitute for love, purity is no substitute for passion, and deeds are no substitute for devotion. And so in verse five, Jesus instructs them to do the works they did at first. On your outline, do what you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. Again, from marriage expert John Gottman, and this is on your outline, many people think the secret to reconnecting is a candlelit dinner or a seaside vacation, but the real secret is to turn toward each other in little ways every day. And then he gives these examples. At the end of the day, talk about how it went, cook together, do chores together, read, exercise, play cards, call or send loving text messages, think of each other, thank each other. For, for that, they, that you tell them that you're thinking of them. Thank them for what they do. Catch them doing something good and let them know about it. Godman says that 15 minutes a day full of little things is often all it takes to restore relationship if those 15 minutes are consistent and daily. And that same goes with our relationship with Jesus. It, it doesn't take long, it just takes consistency. It doesn't take hours every day, it just takes consistency and faithfulness. I know that most of us love to learn about Jesus. Theology is important, but it's only important in that it fuels our love for him and that it fuels our love for other people, the way we walk in our lives, that we walk patiently towards the people that we know and love the best, those who are closest to us, and those we, that are outside and, and far away from God. So here's a question for you. What were the daily things that you did when you first felt close to the Lord? What were those things? Do those things again. For me, it was getting lost in the study of God's word. I just remember having all these books out, now that a lot of it's you know, on the computer, but I remember having all these books out and reading and just learning. It was so fun to learn all these things about God. And, and then I, I couldn't keep my mouth shut, and I, I'm embarrassed about some of the ways that I share the Lord, but I was not afraid to talk to anybody about Christ. And uh, I remember going up to one couple who were having probably a romantic dinner together and sitting down and saying, have you ever heard about Jesus? I can't believe I did that. I'm embarrassed about that. But that's, I, I was, uh, I don't know. But one indication I think that you can see that your love is slipping away is when you pray 
It's all about you. It's all about things you want. You spend very little time thanking God for who he is or what he's done for you. So make sure that's the beginning of your time in prayer. And, and it begins with the discipline of doing that. And then it just will flow. But, but that's an important thing that, that I want to encourage you to do today, this week. Practice that. And then finally look at verse 7. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, we hear this sermon and we think, man, alive, this friend of mine, I wish he could hear this. I know a church that really needs to hear this message. And Jesus says, no, it's for you. It's, it's for you. It's for all of us. And, and we, the church, are challenged in the, in the last part of verse 7 with the promise of eternal life and eternal security to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our victory is participation in his victory. It's the promise of eternity with him. I, I heard about this guy who uh, said goodnight to his five-year-old daughter. And like an hour later, he peeked back in and she was still awake. And he said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And she said, I was just thinking of, of uh, getting married to my prince. And you want, I want you to be my prince. And he said, well, I'm your mommy's prince. I can't be your prince. And then she said, well, who will be my prince? And he said, I don't know. Maybe it's somebody that you know. Maybe it's somebody that you don't even know now. But the very best thing is to let daddy decide. <laughs> but you know what? She was just expressing what's on everybody's heart that, that can't be quenched in us, that we want to be somebody's prince or princess. We all want to be somebody's beloved. And what's implied here is that you are the beloved of God. You share in his victory. And that is the deepest truth of our identity with Christ. You know, you've probably heard of how 12-step meetings start. You know, they, somebody stands up, my name's Kenny and I'm an alcoholic or whatever it is, whoever's in there, they stand up and they introduce themselves. I think in church it should be, well, my name's Kenny and I'm a sinner. Uh, we're all sinners. But you know what even it would be better is my name's Kenny and I'm the beloved. I'm God's beloved. You know what? Just turn to the person next to you. Just say that. My name is and I'm God's beloved. Go ahead. <laughs> you know what? I know some of you, <laughs> some of you can't say that without laughing and smiling. And some of you can't say that without getting a tear in your eye. Because you are God's beloved, because you know that that's true. And that's the joy of it. And I, you know what? These, these Ephesians had gotten off track. And Jesus is saying to them, you are my beloved. And there's nothing else to prove. If you know that you're God's beloved, what more do you need to prove? What, what more do you need to have? Who else do you need to impress? What ladder do you need to climb? What, what prestige do you need to gain if you know that you're God's beloved? And so this is on your outline. This, this whole letter to the Ephesians isn't just Jesus calling me to love him more. I think as much as it's Jesus telling me that he loves me most, that we are his beloved. And so he doesn't want us to lose our first love to him. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you showed us your love in the ultimate way that you gave your life to set us free. We thank you that you love us because um, that's the only way we love you is because you first loved us. Thank you that you left paradise so that we could spend eternity in paradise. Thank you that you died on a tree so that we could have access to the tree of life. And maybe for you, this is the moment that you need to run into Jesus' arms. I don't know where you're at spiritually. If you've never done that, if you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, this is the time to do it. And you can just say, Jesus, I receive your love that you showed me so clearly on the cross. I receive your sacrifice as my own. Help me to grow now in love for the rest of my life. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Well, he who has said all these things declares, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.